Take your Bibles, please, and turn to Hebrews chapter 6. We're going to read verses 13 through 20. And please stand with me as we read God's Word. Hebrews 6, verse 13. For when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and I will surely multiply you. And so, having patiently waited, he obtained the promise. For men swear by one greater than themselves, and with them an oath given as confirmation is an end of every dispute. In the same way, God, desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose, interposed with an oath, so that by two unchangeable things, in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have taken refuge would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope set before us. This hope we have as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one which enters within the veil, where Jesus has entered as a forerunner for us, having become a high priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. Lord, we thank you for your word. We pray, Lord, that you would speak to our hearts today. And we pray in Jesus' name, amen. And please be seated. <clears throat> Hope looks ahead. Hope looks ahead and points to something certain but not yet realized. It's the confident expectation that God will do what he says he will do. The Puritan writer Samuel Rutherford said... Our hope is not hung upon such an untwisted thread as, I imagine so, or it is likely. Our hope is tied to the strong rope of a fastened anchor. It is the oath and promise of him who is eternal. Our salvation is fastened with God's own hand and Christ's own strength to the strong stake of God's unchangeable nature hope for many people hope is hard to come by almost 10 percent of the population nearly 19 million americans suffer from depression and the number one sign of depression is hopelessness a feeling of despair lack of hope we're living in what Harvard professor Armand Nikolai says, the age of despair. There's a crisis of hope. But humans have always needed hope to persevere. Always. I think that's why the writer to the Hebrews focused so much on the Christian's hope. The Jewish believers he was writing to were in danger of, of losing their hope, of slipping back under pressure, of not holding on due to difficulties. In fact, Hebrews 6 can be summarized with three statements. Number one, in, in verses 1 through 8, take heed of the warning to not fall away spiritually. Verses 9 through 12, take heart and live with assurance that you are secure in Christ because Christ holds on to you. And then in our passage for today, take hold of the hope set before us. Take hold. Of all people, Christians ought to be the most hopeful because we have the most reason for hope. Whatever we are facing, 
whatever we will face, we always have hope. But how does our confident expectation that God will do what he says he will do take shape? How does it come about? The first thing is this, that the reliability of God's promises give us courage. They give us courage. God's promises reassure us. The strongest encouragement for hope is the conviction that God's word is trustworthy, that is reliable, that is completely true. And in this passage, we have first the example of Abraham. Perfect example. It says, when God made the promise to Abraham, since he could swear by no one greater, he swore by himself. He made a promise to Abraham. It starts in Genesis chapter 12 and then we'll, goes on to chapter 22. Abraham was the son of an idolater. He was a descendant of Shem, one of Noah's sons. But many generations of idolatry and false worship had taken their toll, had left their mark. And they lived in a pagan land in Ur, an ancient Chaldean city of Mesopotamia. Living in this godless land, coming from a godless family, God marked Abraham out, chose him, predestined him, and Abraham was just minding his own business, just doing what he usually does. And all of a sudden, God comes, and God speaks. And he speaks words that blew Abraham away. Look at Genesis chapter 12. In Genesis chapter 12, God comes upon Abraham, then called Abram, and he said, go forth from your country, take off, leave, go from your father's house to the land which I will show you, and I will make you a great nation. I will make you a great nation, God says to him. Out of the blue, he finds Abraham and says, I'm going to make you a great nation, and I'm going to bless you, and I'm going to make your name great, and you will be a blessing, and I will bless those that bless you, and I will curse those that curse you. That's what he said to Abraham. God made some amazing promises to, to Abraham. He didn't deserve them. He couldn't fulfill them. But he was to receive them by faith. God promised him a homeland. God promised him many descendants. Blessings for all the nations. His name, his name meant father of a people. He was 75 years old. He was childless. He was a pilgrim. Sarai, his wife, was barren, beyond hope of having children. In Genesis chapter 15, God came to him in a vision. He said, do not fear, Abram. I am a shield to you. Your reward shall be very great. And Abram complained to God. He said, Oh Lord God, what will you give me since I am childless and the heir of my house is Eliezer of Damascus? Since you've given me no offspring, one born in my house is my heir. And God said to him, This man will not be your heir, but one who will come forth from your own body he shall be your heir. And he took him outside and he pointed up to the sky and he said, now count the stars. And if you can count them, that's how many your descendants shall be. Abraham 
complained to God. God gave him encouragement to believe. He needed faith in God's promises. And in verse 6 of chapter 15, in Genesis, we read that Abram believed in the Lord and God reckoned it to him as righteousness. Justification by faith. God says, I'm going to do it. God swore by himself. There was no one greater to swear by. God made the promise on his own basis. He swore by the highest and most precious reality in the universe, himself. And we read in in our scripture for today that Abram patiently waited. Abraham patiently waited. Now, how did he do that? I mean, his life story was really one of of perseverance leading to greater and greater faith. But early on, he could barely follow. He was doubting. At times, he was angry. He wavered. I mean, he went out and tried to get the son of the promise in his own way. He had an illegitimate child with Hagar. And he patiently waited? All I can say is that makes me feel good. (laughs) Because of this. God is faithful. We are often unfaithful. But we can say that, and God can say, Abraham patiently waited because God patiently waited with Abraham. Abraham kept wavering and God had to keep reiterating the promise. He brought it back to him again and again and again. Just because he didn't get it the first time didn't mean that he was rejected. God came to him in Genesis 17. In Genesis 17, he changes his name to Abraham, father of many nations. He institutes the visible sign of circumcision as a sign of his covenant. And we read that Abraham, in our text for today, says Abraham received the promise. He received God's promise. That's interesting too. Hebrews 11.13 said that they all died in faith without receiving the promises. So how did he receive God's promise? I mean, it didn't look like he was patiently waiting, but he did. 25 years worth. And then it says that he he obtained the promise, but we read in Hebrews 11 that he died without seeing the promise. What happened? It's this. His faith was tested for, for 25 years. In Genesis 17, God changes his name. He gives him this covenant of circumcision, the sign of the covenant with circumcision. And in Romans 4, we read that, that, that in hope against hope, Abraham believed. He believed that God would make him the father of many nations. Later on, it says that he did not let the weakness of his own body or the deadness of Sarah's womb deter him. He was strong in faith. He was confident that God would do just as he had promised. 25 years after God made the promise to him, he received his son Isaac in fulfillment of that promise. But this was only the beginning step of the fulfillment of the promise because he didn't see the final stage in his own lifetime. The ultimate fulfillment in Christ. So he received the promised son. He did not see the full fulfillment of the promise while he was living. 
Verses uh, 13 through 15 in our passage for today here in Hebrews 6 points to another situation in Abraham's life. In Genesis chapter 21, Isaac was born. Sarah was 99 years old. The child of promise through a barren womb to show that salvation is by grace alone, not by the will or the ability of man. And this fulfilled promise led to an even bigger test of Abraham's faith. We come to Genesis chapter 22. And you know the story, Genesis chapter 22. God says to to Abraham, take now your son, your only son whom you love, the only son of promise, Isaac, and offer him there as a sacrifice in the place that I will, will tell you. And so early the next morning, Abraham got up and saddled his beast of burden and took his son and took the wood and took the fire. And they came to the mountain that he told his servants, I and the lad will go yonder. We will worship. We will come back. We will return. And he builds the altar and he puts his son on top and he takes the knife in full agreement with God's command and he is going to slay his son. He's going to kill his son. And then we see what happens in verse 14. Excuse me. In verse 11. The, uh, Genesis twenty-two eleven, The angel of God calls to him from heaven and says, Abraham, Abraham. He answers, here I am. And he says this. Do not stretch out your hand against the lad. Do nothing to him. For now I know that you fear God. You have not withheld your son, your only son, from me. And then he looked and he saw a ram caught in the thicket by its thorns. God provided the ram in place of his son. Substituted the ram in place of his son. God did that. Abraham believed the promise. He received him back. He even believed that God was able to raise his son from the dead if necessary. If he had gone through with the command. He called the name of that place Jehovah Jireh. God will provide. And then God restates the promise again. In in verse 15 A second time the angel of God comes to Abraham, speaks to him from heaven and says this, By myself I have sworn, declares the Lord, because you have done this thing and have not withheld your son, your only son, indeed, this is verse 17, Genesis 22, 17, I will greatly bless you and I will greatly multiply you. Literally that means this, blessing I will bless you multiplying, I will multiply you. It's emphatic. God will do this. And he says this, he says, I will greatly multiply your seed as the stars in the heavens and as the sand which is on the seashore. And in your seed, all the nations of the earth will be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. That's what God said to Abraham. Believe the promise. He patiently endured. You may be going through a time of patient endurance. 
You don't feel like you are. You feel more like Abraham, going back and forth and wishy-washy and sometimes believing and other times thinking that God's not going to come through on his promise. Be encouraged. (laughs) Abraham was like that too. His was not the perfect picture of someone who, who didn't mess up. The point for us is this. In spite of all the obstacles, in spite of all the reasons to doubt, in spite of all the reasons not to believe, Abraham received God's promise. And the writer, God, wants, to hear, wants us to hear this. He wants us to be encouraged that we have many reasons to doubt, that we may be tired of trusting God for the things we don't yet have, that we get weary of looking to the future, but that we can look to this example of Abraham to help us keep going. See, it's on account of two unchangeable things. Two unchangeable things. Two immutable things. Things that cannot be changed, that will not be changed, that there is no possibility of change, no alteration. They are permanent. Permanent. What are those two things? What are those two unchangeable things? See, in verse 17, we read that in the same way, God desiring even more to show to the heirs of the promise the unchangeableness of his purpose interposed with an oath so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we might have strong encouragement, courage to lay hold, to take hold of the hope that's set before us. What are those two things? The first thing is the promise of God. The promise of God. What he says he will do. Reliable because God is reliable. Trustworthy because God is trustworthy. There is no credibility gap with God. There is with you and me. I lie. You lie. I lied this week. I'm sure you lied this week too. Make me feel better, please. We lie. There is a credibility gap. Someone lies to you once and then again and again and pretty soon you don't believe anything they say even when they're telling the truth. But there is no possibility for God to lie. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. We can do that. Trust in the Lord and do good. Psalm 37. We can do that because God is trustworthy. His promise is sure. What he says he will do, he will do. He didn't just give the promise to Abraham once, remember. He kept reiterating it over and over and over again. Because Abraham needed that. And he knows we do too. But there's something else. There's something else. Not just his promise, but his oath. His pledge. It's very interesting. God gave a promise and a pledge. A promise and an oath. One would have done. (laughs) One was sufficient. Either one of them is immutable. Either one of them is infallible. Why both? Why two things? I'll tell you why. Because because of our weakness. Because of Abraham's weakness. You see, God did not need to make an oath to make his promise more sure. It did not become uh, truer because he made an oath. I love making up words. Uh, It did not become more true because he's completely trustworthy. So why did he do it? He did it because our faith is weak. 
He did it because Abraham's faith was also weak. We are prone to disbelieve. We are prone to doubt. We are prone to waver. We are prone to sink to the depths of despair quite easily. See, God knows how we think. God knows how we are, and he has made every consideration. He has made every provision for us to be able to find out that it makes sense to trust him. That it makes sense to trust God. It's right, it's true, it's good, it works. The Greek word for interposed means guaranteed. See, here's what God did. He guaranteed his own promise with an oath. There is no complaint with that. There is no dispute. It's settled. It's secure. It's, it's unilateral. Go back to Genesis 15 for just a moment. You've got to see this. In Genesis 15, God had reiterated the covenant once more. He, he says, look up to heaven. If you can count the stars, that's how many your descendants will be, innumerable. And then he says something else. He says, uh, Abraham asked God a question. He says, Lord, how will I know if I will possess what you are saying that I shall possess. And here's what God said. He says, take a three-year-old heifer and a three-year-old female goat and a dove and a pigeon and, and God, God received these from Abraham. He cut them in two. Abraham cut them in two and laid each side opposite the other. It, it's gross, I know. It, it, it's really gross. I was walking this morning and I saw uh, a dead animal and it's just, I get a shiver you just shudder when I see it. But here we're talking a bunch of them, cut in half, bloody, in two rows with an aisle down the middle. Why? Because when they made covenants, they would, the both parties making the covenant would pass through the middle of the covenant, thereby both agreeing to the terms, thereby both being bound by the terms. But guess what happened? Here's what happened. Verse 17 of of Genesis 15. It came about when the sun had set, it was very dark. Behold, there appeared a smoking oven and a flaming torch which passed through the pieces. Do you know what was happening there? Abraham was not there. Abraham did not pass through the middle of of those pieces of the animals. God alone did that. It was a unilateral covenant. Abraham had no part in it. He had no part in determining the conditions. He had no part in in it coming to pass. Usually both parties would walk between between the pieces. They were both bound. But here God alone walked. He made an oath all by himself, completely resting on himself, and he assumed full responsibility both for the the making and the fulfilling of this covenant. It's an awesome picture. I got a friend actually who, who attempted to paint this, this picture. It's like a 10 foot tall uh, oil painting he did. It's a wild scene if you think about it. God himself passing through the pieces of these animals to show his oath that he will bring it to pass what he promised. 
And I'll tell you what. Sure, it was great for Abraham, but it didn't stop there. It was for us too, for us. When God took him up and said, count the stars if you can, that's how many descendants you'll have. He's talking about us, people of faith, people who believe the promise of God and the seed, which is Jesus, is us, It is for us. God was pointing to us. Through faith in Christ, the promise offering of grace, all the promises are received. All the promises are fulfilled in Christ. The result? Hope. We can have hope. We can have not despair, but hope. We may have strong encouragement, as the scriptures tell us. We who have, as our passage for today says, fled for refuge. Man, fled for refuge. In laying hold of the hope set before us. Strong encouragement. What's this idea of fleeing for refuge? There's something pictured, another Old Testament picture. The city of refuge. The city of refuge that you could go to if you accidentally killed someone. If you innocently killed someone, you could flee to a city of refuge. There were six of these in Israel. Three on either side of the Jordan. You could go there. It was for you if you had made that accidental mistake. You can read about it in Numbers 35 and Deuteronomy 4 and Joshua 20. They were to provide protection against revenge for the person who unintentionally killed someone. Accidentally. And as long as you stayed in the city of refuge, the refugee was safe. The manslayer could not kill you. You could also go home with legal protection once the high priest died. See, we, we have fled for refuge to God. From our sin to God. It's like a pilgrim in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress. He did not just flee from the city of destruction. He, flee, he fled to the celestial city. From sin and to God. We who have trusted in the promise that was first made to Abraham regarding his seed, a promise that saw its final fulfillment in Jesus Christ, the unique seed, we have fled for refuge from God's judgment to grasp that hope that is available to us in Christ. To flee for refuge is to turn to Christ, to find salvation and security. If you haven't done that yet, you need to do that. There is no other place to go. There is no other refuge. There is no other provision. There is no other name by which we must be saved than the name of Jesus. If you have not gone there yet, you need to run there. You need to go there as quick as you can. Right now, as you're sitting there, just in prayer, acknowledging to God that you've sinned and acknowledging that you believe that Jesus died for that sin. The city of refuge was available. And the city of refuge is available to us. We are to lay hold of our hope. Our city of refuge, Jesus. Jesus is our city of refuge. Cities of refuge were within reach of the needy person. They were able to get to it. Jesus draws us to himself. Jesus shows us the way because he is the way. That's beautiful. He 
He is our city of refuge. Cities of refuge were open to everyone, not just the Israelites. And Jesus said that whoever believes in him would not perish, but have eternal life. Open to all who will come. Cities of refuge were, were the only alternative for the one in need. Without this specific protection, they would be destroyed. But they provided protection only within their boundaries. You had to stay within the city, within the bounds of the city. To go outside meant death. Well, God has given the boundary in Christ. To go outside of Christ and looking for salvation means death. There is no salvation outside of Jesus. No one comes to the Father except through Jesus. With with both Jesus and the cities of refuge, full freedom came with the death of the high priest. Jesus died to purchase our freedom so that we could live. He bought our freedom with his own blood. It's interesting. In salvation, we we flee to Jesus. And then we, we often forget. We forget and we go fleeing to a lot of other things that we think will help us. And all they do is mess us up. It's like Abraham. Code word for sin in his life was Egypt. Going down to Egypt. When Abraham went down to Egypt, he stopped worshiping God. He started lying. (laughs) He went the wrong way. He had to go back up, retrace his steps. Much like Pilgrim in Pilgrim's Progress, he left his scroll behind. He had to go back, go get it, retrace his steps. We don't always flee to Jesus. Anything we go to as God except the one true God will spoil on us, will mess us up will hurt us. God went the extra mile to to see to it that we would have strong encouragement to take hold of the hope that is in him. He, He wants us to have encouragement that all the promises will come true for us and that our future is firmly in his hand, that we are in his hand. He wants us to experientially lay hold of it. And this week I've been asking myself, what does it look like? What does it look like to lay hold of the hope? What does it look like to lay hold of the hope that we have in Christ? There's some practical things we can do, I think, to move forward towards that. It means banking everything on our hope in Christ. Everything. Every hope you have. Every desire that you have. Banking all of it on Jesus. Trusting in Him. Feeling secure in Him. Being satisfied with Him. Longing for him and his promises like you long for the things you desire most in life. It means thinking deeply on the word of God and how great our hope is and how sure our hope in, is in the presence of God. Like those, those, those verses we shared with each other today. Those verses that we know that we can bring back that we forget about sometimes five minutes later, don't we? God knows. We need to remind ourselves. It means praying that God would open our minds and heart to the greatness and the certainty that will lead us to hope in Him. It means considering Christians who have laid hold of their, of their hope, laid hold of their hope. In 1934, when 28 year old John uh, Stamm and his wife Betty were being led away to execution, they were missionaries uh, to to China, and they were led to execution by communists, and along the road, someone says, Where are you going? And he answered, we are going to heaven. 
He laid hold of his hope. We are going to heaven. It means being willing to let God do it his way and in his time. It means the opposite of making plans and then, uh, and then bullying God into, into finishing them up, into making them come true and to put them in effect. You see, we need to help each other do these things. We need to be closely associated with other believers so that we can help one another when we get off track. So that we can ask for help and give the help. That we can encourage each other daily to hold on to our hope. Without it, we grow cold. See, the reliability of God's promises give us courage. Courage to do what God has called us to do. To face whatever comes our way, whatever is allowed by the hand of God into our life, it gives us courage in the good times and in the bad times. I, as I was thinking through this this week, I was thinking, it is so easy to not live with courage in the good times or the bad times. To have a false courage in our own selves in the good times and to have a, a despair in the bad times. You see, it gives us courage to do what God calls us to do during all the times. Even if we look weak in the process, we can know we are not weak. We are strongest then. Let me say something to the men here. Guys, you, me, we uh, are messed up. A lot of the time. And I'll tell you what, as husbands and as fathers, there are, there's something that I've been thinking about and only sometimes practice, <laughs> all right? Uh, and it's this. Our greatest strength is when we feel weakest. God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. So for example, when your child disrespects you and the pride wells up in you and you want to blast them and say, how dare you disrespect me? I deserve honor and respect as your father. When your wife says something that sets you off, intentional or unintentional, and you want to rise up and you say, if I don't say something back, then I must be weak. And I know we all think that, guys. If I don't say something back, I must be the weak one. Can you take the hit? Can you take the hit from your wife and your kids and your coworkers and anyone else who comes in your path? Can you take the hit and, and feel weak and look weak and allow God to do something amazing? I'll tell you, the, the few times I have done that, God just blows me away with what, he, what comes my way as a result. Our our greatest strength is when we feel the weakest. The reality of God's promises, they give us courage to do the very thing we're called to do. There's one last thing. The first thing was that reliability of God's promises. The second is this, the reality of Christ's presence. You see, the reality of Christ's presence gives us strength. Strength. Um, Christ's presence literally strengthens us. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Philippians 4.13, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. See, from the picture of the city of refuge, we now shift to an anchor. Uh, a good, old, trusty anchor. You, you capture the thought immediately. You know what an anchor is supposed to do. An anchor holds a ship so it doesn't drift away. It holds it firm. You know. In the hope we have in Jesus, it's like an anchor. An anchor was a common symbol of, of hope in the ancient biblical world. 
Our hope in Jesus is like an anchor because he's our spiritual support every single moment of every single day. Think of the the persecutions that the early Christian church experienced. Think about how they had to cling to Jesus as their anchor because he clung to them as their anchor. Sometimes an anchor was associated in those days. They would put a letter E on an anchor uh, to stand for the Greek word elpis, meaning hope. You often put an anchor and a fish together, which stands for our hope in Christ. Early Christians sometimes used an anchor uh, as a disguised cross, uh, as a marker to guide the way to a secret meeting place. I heard of one martyr who was tied to an anchor and thrown into the sea. Our hope, this hope we have, verse 19 says, as an anchor of the soul, a hope both sure and steadfast, and one with, which enters within the veil. Uh, this hope is, is sure, it is stable. It won't fall over, it won't totter, it is unbending. It can't be toppled over, and it can't be twisted out of shape. It is steadfast, it won't break down, it will not be broken, it cannot be broken. Jesus is with us always, always, always he is with us. In Romans 8, 24, it says that hope that is seen is not hope. You cannot see an anchor at work, but you know when it does its job. We're anchored to something firm, but yet unseen. And and that anchor enters within the veil, the very holy of holies. The Old Testament priest would go into the holy of holies, a mere copy the earthly copy of the holy of holies, heaven itself. Jesus entered there as a forerunner on our behalf. A forerunner is a nautical term, actually. This is the only time this term, this word is used in the Bible. I want to read you something that Louis Talbot ex- uh, said about this. He explained it this way. Greek harbors were often cut off from the sea by sandbars over which the larger ships dare not pass till the full tide came in. Therefore, a lighter vessel, a forerunner, took the anchor and dropped it in the harbor. From that moment, the ship was safe from the storm, though it had to wait for the tide before it could enter the harbor. The entrance of the small vessel into the harbor, the forerunner carrying the ship's anchor, was the pledge that the ship would safely enter the harbor when the tide was was full. And because Christ, our forerunner, has entered heaven itself, having torn asunder everything that separates the redeemed sinner from the very presence of God, he himself is the pledge that we too shall one day enter the harbor of our souls and the very presence of God in the new Jerusalem. And I will add, the Holy Spirit indwelling believers is also God's pledge, God's deposit, God's guarantee for our inheritance to come. Jesus is a perpetual high priest. As such, he carries us, carries us into the presence of God. We are assured of this access into the presence of God because Jesus has entered as a forerunner. The Old Testament priest did not enter into the, behind the veil as a forerunner, only as a representative. Jesus has entered into the Father's intimate presence so that his people can follow him there. We have continual access into the presence of God, not once a year through a sinful man, but every single moment through a sinless Savior. It's anchored in Christ, our great high priest, who ministers continually, who ministers eternally. Jesus entered the heavenly 
holy of holies. And he did not leave after the sacrifice was made, as the Old Testament priests would have. No, he sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. He sat down at the right hand of the throne of God, and he stays there forever as the guardian of our souls. That is absolute security. That is absolute security. And in that temptation, whether in the good times or the bad times to trust ourselves, all I can say is we can't be trusted all the time. But Jesus can be trusted all the time. See, Christian hope is like no other hope. See, others, their hoping is is wishing. uh, Wanting but not having. Unlike the world's hope which goes nowhere, has no anchor, our hope is in Christ who went before us into heaven. Here's the thing. This is wild. We have an anchor in the sanctuary. The nautical made holy. (laughs) An anchor in the sanctuary. Jesus himself. Every anchor goes down into the sea, but this anchor goes up into heaven. And our hope is attached by the finished work of Christ to the secure foundation of the unchanging character of God. So then, Jesus is our hope. And we are like soldiers fighting for a cause and a kingdom far greater than ours. We're fighting for the glory and the kingdom of God. And so then, right now, right here and now, we can live with courage. We can live with courage because of the reliability of God's promises that give us that courage. And right here and now, we can live with strength. We can live with strength right here and now because of the very real presence of Jesus with us. Always. Someday. Someday we will be with him. And someday we will be like him. Let's pray. Lord God, we, we praise you. We are, we are blown away by your, your amazing goodness and by the fact that we have a hope outside of ourselves that now lives within us and that our hope is secured by the blood of Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Thank you, Jesus. Amen.